turn in your Bibles to Philemon. There's only one chapter, so we don't usually talk about chapters with Philemon. There are 25 verses, and so tonight we're going to be looking at Philemon 1 through 7. Uh, and I think what I may do over the next couple of weeks is uh, next week as we move to the next passage, do the reading from verse 1 anyways, and then in the third week begin in verse 1 as well and read the entire thing. It's such a brief book that to hear it together has, uh, has advantage for us, and so we'll do that. Uh, just to set the, uh, the context very quickly, Paul, in the course of his ministry, writes letters from his imprisonment in Rome, uh, a set of letters, as a matter of fact, that uh, the best we can tell were, were sent out together at the same time, Colossians being another letter in this group. We refer to these letters as the prison epistles. And uh, in this letter, however, unlike some of the others, he is writing not to necessarily a minister in the church uh, about the nature of his ministry like he does with Timothy or Titus, not necessarily to an entire congregation as he does with the Colossians, but here to a particular individual in the church about a particular issue. And the best we can piece it together based on what we do know is that this man Philemon, whose home hosted a church in Colossae, uh, that, that he, he had a slave. And this slave, who was not a believer, ran away from Philemon. He escaped and in the course of his running, whether he went looking for the Apostle Paul or uh, simply by the providence of God encountered the Apostle Paul, nonetheless, one way or the other, he does meet Paul in his, his house imprisonment in Rome, and Paul shares the gospel with him, and he's saved. And that slave's name is Onesimus. Having been saved, Paul is now sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Uh, and this letter goes with Onesimus. And in the letter, Paul is going to appeal on behalf of Onesimus, both that, that Philemon would receive him back as a brother, uh, but even Paul implies that there's a, an implicit request that he would send Onesimus back to him because he's become a partner in the ministry. It's a beautiful letter. At times, it can feel perhaps as though Paul is being a little cheeky, uh, you'll see, if you've not read Philemon, I would encourage you to read it as often as you can over the coming weeks. But really what's happening is, even in this context, the subject about which Paul writes is a difficult subject. There's the kingdom of our Lord, and there's the kingdom of this world, and in the kingdom of this world, this is a taboo subject. To say to a man, you have to set your slave free, was not just counterculture but ran a great many risks. Paul was not a man afraid to run a risk. But what we're going to see on display in Philemon is Paul at his pastoral finest. Paul shepherding gently the heart of a brother. There are larger questions about slavery. Paul is not condoning slavery in Philemon, but neither does he explicitly tear down the institution that existed in the first century. But that's not his intention. Paul's not writing to end slavery. And there's, there's other conversations we may have, and we may get into it next week, where it's, it's more a part of the text in front of us, uh, just what it is that we can learn from Paul about how he addresses this question of slavery. But tonight, Paul, though he's, he's formulating the opening to his letter the way he so often does, 
from Paul to this person. I always give thanks in all of my prayers for you. It's going to feel very familiar. But Paul is, is framing these things in a way to prepare Philemon for the request that's coming. To begin already to give hints at what it is that he's going to ask. Paul's not being insincere. But he is choosing carefully those things that he has to say to and about Philemon as he writes. Let me pray for us. We'll read the text and jump in this evening. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this tremendous example of what it looks like to shepherd carefully, uh, to speak the truth without fear, and yet to do so in a way that is calculated to protect the hearts of those who hear. Uh, Father, we pray that we too would learn this lesson so that as pastors, as elders, uh, as parents, as spouses, we would be gentle in speaking truth to one another seeking to build up and not tear down. Father, would you change us in this way? Make us more like Christ, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Philemon 1, and we'll read through verse 7. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, our two points tonight are that our lives are not our own. Our lives are not our own. They belong to Christ. And the inescapable necessity of Christian community. The inescapable necessity of Christian community. First, our lives are not our own. Look Look at the text again. Paul calls himself a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Now, if, if, ironically, the more familiar you are with the New Testament, and particularly Paul's letters, the more likely you are to miss what he did right there. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul is not using the figurative spiritual language here to describe himself as a doulos, a slave to Christ, or a servant to Christ. Paul is literally a prisoner in Rome, and he is a prisoner for the sake of Christ. He's a prisoner. He's intending to make a point here. My life is not mine. Our lives are not ours. And he makes this point. It's in the, the original language, it's the second word in the letter. Now, the letter only has 330 some odd words in it. Right? So Paul's got to get to the point. And already he's beginning to put markers down for the, the argument that he wants to make with Philemon in his appeal. Yours, your life, Philemon, is not your own. It's an interesting point to make, given the fact that the question is one of the ownership of another human person. The question of Onesimus' status as a slave in the household of Philemon 
immediately Paul is beginning to put down markers, stakes in the ground on the question, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And though it's literal for Paul, is it not in some sense true for us? Paul does elsewhere use that language of doulos, servant or slave, for Christ's sake. Paul calls also, notice in verse 2, the entire church to listen. Paul's going to write a letter where he implies that a man should set his slave free. And he's going to appeal to him, plead with him to receive Onesimus as a brother. And he addresses the letter to Philemon, to Apphia, who's probably the wife of Philemon, and Archippus, who's, who's either a, a deacon in that church or perhaps the son of Philemon. But he doesn't stop there. This, this letter doesn't go to Philemon's house as house, but to Philemon's house as church. The letter is addressed to the church in your house. Now, what if I went on a long trip, but I was still the pastor of the church, and I were to write a letter back to the church, and I were to say to one of our members, I won't pick on anybody tonight, was to say to one of our members, hey, listen, that property you own, uh, you know what? I want you to think about all of the ways that the church has been good to you. I want you to think about all the ways that God has blessed you and, and given you even your life. It would be a small thing, wouldn't it, for you to give the property to the church? And by the way, make sure that the letter that I've written to you, I want it read in the church. I want the whole church to hear me say to you that this would be a good thing to do. In our day and age, we might be inclined to say that's none of everybody else's business. I own that property. There's no sin in owning that property. And the church doesn't get to decide or, or in any way judge me for how I use the things that belong to me. That's how this would have hit in the first century as it comes to Philemon. Our lives are not our own. The things that we own are not our own. All of it belongs to Christ and is to be used in the service of Christ. Look at verse 6. One more point in the text that I want to look at quickly, and then we're going to unpack this first point. Again, this, I think this, key, this, this verse 6 is key in these opening verses. Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. We have among us all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. And we even have one another. That, that's part of the package. That's part of what's promised. We are gifts given to one another. And the church, the body of Christ, the community that's formed by those who believe we in that community are gifts to one another. And it's only together, as we're going to see in our second point this evening, only together that we come to the fullest understanding of all of the blessings that are ours in Christ. And it's all for the sake of Christ. Even our knowledge of the blessings that are ours in Christ, our experience of those blessings, all of it is to be Put into the service of Christ. It should lead to the worship of Christ. It should cause us to tell others about Christ. 
Sometimes we shouldn't even have to tell them. They should, they should be asking us. Always be ready, we're told in the New Testament, to give an answer for the hope that's in you. How do you come about that hope? And having come about that hope, what good is it for? Just your comfort? No, your comfort and for the good of Christ, as others see that comfort, that hope that you have. Which is why I think Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Our lives are not our own. The book that we have, the letter that we have in front of us over these next few weeks, it's very narrowly uh, circumscribed. It, it is, it's about a very specific instance in a time and a place, but the principles that we find at work here that Paul appeals to are universal and timeless principles. All week long, as I was turning this passage over in my mind, uh, I kept coming back to the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. This is worth memorizing alongside the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments. This is the kind of thing that I imagine Christians for hundreds of years have muttered to themselves in the midst of intense persecution. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly, and wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. Paul, Paul wants to, to get directly to the heart of the matter right out of the gate. He's doing it subtly. That's, the, the subtlety is not a, uh, a tactic to win. The subtlety is a pastoral gentleness that Paul displays throughout the letter. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. How we spend our lives, brothers and sisters, is not a matter of indifference as we, we wrestle with how to spend our lives, however we spend them, it is to be in the service of Christ. Elders and deacons, we are to, to be elders and deacons in the service of Christ, not in the service of ourselves. And even in as much as we serve the church, even that service is unto the Lord. Husbands and wives, you are not your own, and you don't own one another. You belong to the Lord, 
Now there is a responsibility given, especially to the husband, to care for, to shepherd, to build up his wife. But that's not ownership. It's not the development of investment capital. It's love, and we do it unto the Lord. If we would remember in all of our work that we are to do it unto the Lord. What does it mean, unto the Lord? That is, for the sake of Christ. And we could generalize this evening, but there are almost as many vocations in this room as there are people. And, and multiple ways in any given vocation that you can go about that work unto the Lord. Certainly, we could generalize that it means you go about it with integrity. It means that you go about it in such a way, perhaps, that it doesn't have to be church work, right? You can go about your vocations in such a way that the people that you work with and for and who work for you will say to themselves, I have got to ask, why? Why? Why does he or she do things even to their harm simply for the sake of keeping their word? Why will they not work on Sunday even when it means we, we lose contracts? Why are they willing to take such good care of their people even when it means that they go without? And employees, I've, I've, I've skipped in my notes down to employers and employees. I skipped parents and children. Children, you're not off the hook. You either parents, right? Parents, children are given to us to raise up for the Lord. In all of our parenting, I, I say this as one who struggled with it myself. We're not raising them for us. We're raising them for Christ. Everything about how we raise our children and especially how we discipline our children should be calculated to bring them to Christ. We are not our own, and those children are not ours either. They are Christ's, given to us to love them well, to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Second this evening, the inescapable necessity of Christian community. It's for Philemon's love for and faith in Christ and love for all the saints that Paul gives thanks. Decidedly communal. Philemon belongs to them and they belong to him. It's only through the faith that they share in common in verse 6 that all good things of verse 5 become known. In verse 6 when he says, says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, he's not talking about evangelism. You know me. If I get a chance to talk about evangelism and to encourage it, I'm going to. That's not what he's talking about here. The word, in fact, for sharing is koinonia in the Greek here. It's the word that's often translated fellowship and used by hipster churches to name their churches. Right? Koinonia fellowship, which is redundant. But it's not, he's not talking about sharing your faith, like getting out on the streets and telling unbelievers about Christ. He's talking about the faith that this community shares in common. 
He prays that the sharing of your faith, that, that common fellowship in Christ, that the fellowship itself may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Doesn't that sound appealing? To have the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ? Paul says here, I'm praying that your Christian community is the means by which God accomplishes that, both for you as a community and therefore each person in it. Community, Christian community is an escapable and inescapable necessity. There's a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the love and faith. Look at verse 5. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Love and faith towards Christ. Love and faith for the saints and together with the saints. All of this then unpacked in verse 6 with that reference to faith. In verse 7 with the reference to love. And so we'll close with, with these observations. First, that faith is not a private thing. As I thought about this this week, we, we, our culture has, has done a, an absolutely bang-up job privatizing faith. It is absolutely the unwritten rule. You don't talk about spiritual things. It's rude. It's none of your business. It's none of my business. And if we want to get a sense for how effectively that's been accomplished, it's true in our churches. If we're not in, in worship itself or in a Sunday school class where there's teaching and questions and discussions, how comfortable are we discussing our faith with one another? We've become so uncomfortable with it out there that it's become uncomfortable in here. To be honest about the fact that we struggle. We struggle with assurance. We struggle with sin and temptation. We struggle to believe that God is good when hard things are happening to us or in our lives. We should be talking to one another about those things. We should be encouraging one another. We should be following on one another and holding one another up. Faith is not a private thing. Faith is also not an individual thing. You cannot go out on your own and expect to thrive, or even be healthy as a Christian. We need one another. This is especially true for those of you who may be only a few years away from going off to college, or leaving home and going into a career. Listen, that, that's a moment in the life of a Christian growing up that it's all too easy to fall away from the church. And I want you to hear that tonight you're going to be tempted to believe that you've got a good copy of the Bible with you and you're going to be fine. And churches are messed up places and you'll visit some maybe and they won't, they won't be all saints. And so you'll say, no, I don't like that church, right? Listen, you need to be with a group of people who know Christ and love Christ, who are all encouraging one another and building one another up and calling one another to repentance demonstrating what it looks like to repent, demonstrating what it looks like to forgive, 
being messy and cleaning up and being messy and cleaning up and looking to Christ over and over again. You desperately need a community that's doing that and that will pull you into it as well. That's true for all of us. It just so happens that more often than not, it's in that transition from living with your parents to being an adult in the world that we are most inclined to fall away. Okay, we're, we're out of time this evening. Over the next two weeks, Paul's going to depend upon uh, these truths implicitly and explicit, explicitly as he reorients Philemon's relationship to Onesimus. Once a slave, but now a brother in Christ. Philemon needs Onesimus, and Onesimus needs Philemon, and in Christ, both are more useful to one another than when each was master and slave. Let's pray.